This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be happy. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. All right. Thank you, Catherine. Over to you. Thanks, Chris. And really lovely to be back here with everybody for the third of um, this series of three uh, talks, which look at the three unwholesome, the root unwholesome mental states of greed, hatred and delusion. And in week one, we looked at greed. Um, in week two, last week, we looked at hatred. And in this week, we're going to solve delusion and ignorance. <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely? Wouldn't that be lovely? And um, 
just as I was chanting the Metta Sutta, there, there, even in the Metta Sutta, there are a number of um, pointers to the antidote of ignorance, to the antidote of delusion, which is, of course, wisdom. Um, and it's not that we decide one day, yep, I'm going to be wise, in the same way that we don't decide the antidote for greed, yep, I'll just be generous and solve that, or we don't decide the antidote for hatred, yep, I'm just going to be filled with loving kindness. These are all practices. These are all things that we um, develop bit by bit by bit. Some lucky doers might do it all at once, um, but I think for most of us we just just keep putting one step in front of the next. Um, and so tonight we're looking at delusion or ignorance. Um, and, you know, the first two weeks I found it hard to select what to focus on. And this week is even harder. It's such a big topic. Um, and it comes into aspects of the Buddhist teaching in so many different ways. And it comes into our lives in so many different ways. Um, I've got a lovely little uh, quote that we can start with. An ignorant person ages like an ox. Their flesh may increase, but not their understanding. Now, I saw this quote attributed to the Buddha, but I'm always a little bit, um, I, I'm not 100% where it comes, sure where it comes from, um, whether it does come from a sutta. Uh, it may do, um, but I didn't see a sutta reference. So I've put Buddha there in soft grey. Um, because so many things get attributed to the Buddha that may or may not, in fact, have ever been the Buddha's words. But in any event, it's a, it's a quote that I think um, can motivate us. Do we want just to age in our flesh and to increase in our flesh or do we want to age and increase in our wisdom? Um, I think... The fact that we're here is uh, shows the answer to that. We know the limitations of um, the limitations of having a human mind, um, and, and it may be that we are um, over time seeing some of the delusions more clearly, and just uncovering more layers and layers. Um, and the Buddha certainly encouraged a very scientific approach to coming to learning about this human condition um, and so as we bring our intention and attention to the the experience of um, having a mind heart hopefully unlike the ox we will increase not only in flesh but also in wisdom What I thought um, I'm going to try and talk about tonight, and I, I probably won't get um, through it all, and each of these I'll only be touching on just because they're, they're such vast um, topics, is to look at some aspects of delusion and or ignorance. Um, so we, we learn that delusion underlines greed and hatred, which we've looked at in week one and two. 
we can think of delusion or ignorance as a misunderstanding of the nature of reality. And so I'll talk a little bit about that. We, a major delusion, particularly in our modern world, is to believe that our happiness comes from our external world and that we can, if only we can manipulate it sufficiently, we'll be able to get, um, achieve happiness. And then the fourth area that I'd like to speak a little bit about is just delusion from distorted perceptions. All of them really interesting topics. Let's see how we go. And of course, there are others um, that we could look at as well. And each of those are interconnected. Um, we, yeah. And sometimes it's chicken and egg thing, particularly, say, with the, the, the delusion that underlies greed and hatred, because delusion not only underlies greed and hatred, but it's produced by greed and hatred. Um, we looked last week about how, you know, with greed, we look at the world through our greedy lens and all of the things that we see oh, look very luscious, look very attractive. We idealise what it is that we see when we see the world through greed. We believe that it will bring us pleasure, um, more pleasure than it's capable of. And when we look at the world through the lens of hatred, we demonise what it is that we see. Um, we demonise the object. We want to get away from it. It's all of it is bad, it's the problem. We need to get rid of it. And so when we see the world through either of these lenses, there's a delusion, a distortion. And I've been really grateful for this focus um, that looking at these three unwholesome mental states has, has brought me. A couple of days ago in meditation, I was sitting meditating and in came into my mind came this thought ah something i've got in the fridge the camembert cheese and what's better it's getting really close to the use by date and i love camembert and it would be a terrible thing for it to pass its use by date so i'm sitting here meditating with these thoughts going through and my my mind decided Really, I should eat it today at lunchtime. Um, so I'm making the plan for uh, attending to this camembert cheese. You know which of the delusions is I'm in the grip of in this moment. Um, you know, I'm imagining how it would taste. And, and what was so useful was just to observe the way I had this intense rush of pleasure. And it was like my whole body was filled with this anticipatory pleasure. Um, not only was my body filled with it, my mind was filled with it. It was all beautiful. You know, I was completely immersed in, in delighting in that fantasy. And I could say to myself, you know, well, what's the problem with that? No one's hurt. I have to eat. It's just a little bit of pleasure. And that would be the voice of delusion. The problem 
of course, is that the pursuit of pleasure, the being caught in pleasure, the being imprisoned by that need to get and to hold, whether we do it in our actions out in the world or just being caught in the mind, um, those forces then end up running the show. It's a bit like a bull with a nose, a ring through its nose. Greed, aversion can take us by the nose and rather than exercising um, any uh, wholesome response to the thought, I'm being moved about. And I mean, maybe not, not everybody here in this group will know this phenomenon, um, but if like me, any of you have ever had the third piece of cake, um, rather than go for the walk or do something more wholesome, you know that even in basic terms of physical well-being, having greed call the shots is not in our interests. Um, by the eighth mouthful of the third piece of cake, it stopped being pleasurable um, because greed lies in the same way that hatred lies. Um, as we're having that you know, eighth mouthful of the third piece of cake, piece of cake um, we see the delusion that sits under the greed, you know, it's exposed. And our task is to get closer and closer and closer to it arising. Um, and uh, before we've, we've engaged in the activity. And that's why it's so useful to see those kinds of mindsets arise in, in meditation, to be able to see them, see the story they tell us, feel them, ah, and then be able to make some choices around them. Because being ruled by pleasure or anger is a dead end. Sort of the opposite to being peaceful, let alone being free. And I remember back to our first week when I asked people, well, why do you come and meditate? What's, what's drawing you to meditation? Many, many, many of us included peace in our answer. Um, so developing peace, stability, freedom um, is certainly aided by being able to see clearly the arising of these mental states, the effect of them, and then the passing away rather than being controlled by them. So that's just a brief touch on the delusion of greed within greed and um, hatred. And I'm just going to briefly touch on that second part, which was the, the delusion or the ignorance that comes from misunderstanding the nature of reality. And there are a number of ways that we could look at this, but one of the common ways is to um, see our misperceptions around um, what the Buddha talked about as the three characteristics of existence or impermanence, non-self and dukkha or suffering or unsatisfactory nature of, of life. So many delusions um, in in how we view the world, how we how we see reality. 
one element of the delusion that we have around suffering is a, a delusion that we should be able to achieve a life without any suffering. Now, while we know that certain kinds of suffering are optional extras, the Buddha taught that the dukkha that comes through the stresses of birth, sickness, ageing, dying are inevitable. They're part of part of life. It isn't that all suffering is inevitable and actually the whole of the Buddhist path in one sense is about ending suffering. Rather it's a mistaken understanding of the causes of suffering and the cessation of suffering that's the delusion. We also suffer from not recognising impermanence, um, another of the marks of existence, impermanence of phenomenon, the, un the, the changing nature of phenomenon. And we tend to want to hold on to the things that we like, even though they, even though they change, and that, that holding on, that clinging to the things that we like, we want, also generates suffering and we feel pain when we lose what it is that we hold dear or anticipate the losing of it. I had a conversation recently with a friend who's got um, two children, one of them in the final year of school and he's planning to join the um, armed forces which will require him to go 4,000 kilometres away from where she lives. Um, and she was talking about how uh, confused she's feeling and how um, unhappy and she wants to know how to guide him. She doesn't think, she doesn't want him to go. She doesn't want him to go. And I was asking her about, oh, you know, what is it that, that um, is, do you want, why do you want him not to go? And she was saying, I want Christmas, I want us to all be together at Christmas. They've had 17 years, 16 years of all being together, 17 years of all being together at Christmas. And, and that's what she wants. Um, of course, of course. Um, and it's painful to anticipate that what she holds dear will come to an end. But maybe building in an understanding of the changing nature of what we hold dear, um, building in some building into our expectations impermanence can soften some of the, the suffering that comes up there. An example of um, the opposite, the, the wisdom of seeing impermanence rather than the um, delusion of permanence was a friend of mine who um, some years ago gave me a cup and saucer for a present. And she, I'd, I'd drunk a cup of tea at her place and it was a very beautiful cup and saucer, I thought. And I was like, oh, this is a beautiful cup and saucer. And so next Christmas she gave me one and I've actually brought it so you can have a look at it. So this is the beautiful cup and saucer that she gave me. 
And I don't know if you can see in in the um, I don't know where it is in the uh, image, but it's it's mouth is oval slightly rather than round, and that's what intrigued me. Um, it's slightly oval. Anyway, <laughs> show and tell. Um, and when she gave it to me, she said, don't worry if it breaks. Don't worry if it breaks. Things break. You don't need to hide it from me if it breaks. Um, and it was such an additional gift to receiving the cup. Um, an acknowledgement of its impermanence. And it really reminded me of the teaching of Ajahn Chah, you know, within the object is already its crack, is its impermanence, is its end. Within us all already is our end. Um, she wasn't a Buddhist, um, but I thought it was a lovely, a lovely gift. So just touched on some of the delusions around suffering, some of the delusions around impermanence. And then, of course, there's non-self, the third mark of existence. Um, so non-self is that idea that there is no unchanging permanent self or essence that can be found in any phenomenon, um, including ourselves. And in the last couple of weeks, I gave different examples of the suffering that comes from identifying with a sense of self who thinks, worries, is self-conscious, gets shame, all those types of things. Um, and rather than clinging to a sense of self, to understand this experience, um, this experience that's unfolding right now, as this body, mind, heart, sits, talks, engages with each of you um, as, as being a more open, more fluid set of conditioned processes um, that arise and pass away, Buddha suggests that's much more closer to reality than this fixed, permanent, essential self that we tend to cling to. And certainly in the identification with that self, there's so much suffering. Just looking at the time again. I might leave until after our meditation um, to talk about that third type of delusion that I mentioned where we believe that happiness is achieved through external controlling our external environment getting what we need pushing away what we don't want um, because i would like to talk about the delusion that arises through distorted perceptions before our meditation and for me um, perception is a fascinating phenomenon in buddhism um, many of you will know it's the third of five categories that the Buddha used to map out our psychophysical experience. So it's one of five things that we know um, after form and after the sense of experience being pleasant, unpleasant, neutral comes perception. 
And that's, you know, over, well over 2,000 years ago. And the neuroscience of perception that's happening right now, a uh, significant area of research and has some really interesting overlaps with Buddhist understanding of perception. The, amongst the many things that the neuroscience of perception um, is indicating is that our brains make shortcuts. They make shortcuts all the time and predict what's about to happen rather than expend limited resources, sensory and um, neurological resources to process all of the information that comes in to determine exactly what's going on. And just as a small example, um, our brains uh, predict the direction that a ball will travel, will continue to travel, it's seeing the ball traveling, it predicts the direction that the ball will travel so that we can catch it. If we relied on the visual processing, there's a lag, a time lag, and we would be too slow. And for any cricketers, the Australians would be dropping even more catches in cricket if we relied on our visual processing um, rather than predicting it will continue going in that direction and I'll catch it by anticipating. There are so many ways that our brain anticipates, um, predicts, rather than waits for the actual phenomenon to unfold. It's really helpful. And then at times it can be a delusion. It can be a misperception. There's quite a lot of different ways that our perceptions are incorrect, um, are deluded. And that includes dozens and dozens of cognitive biases that um, researching psychologists have identified. And I'm just going to show you because it's, I found it quite astounding. Um, where is it? This is the Wikipedia page of cognitive biases. Okay. And I'm just slowly scrolling through some of these cognitive biases that have been researched, have been shown, have been studied. Dozens and dozens of ways that our mind makes mistakes. And here's some that they've just put in a table because they don't want to spend more pages and pages of Wikipedia expanding on them all. I think you get the you get the message. Um, all these different ways that our shortcuts can get us into trouble. Our shortcuts mean that what we perceive is not reality. And one of my one of my favourite. Um, cognitive biases is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, 
And in this bias, what happens is that people, we, you, me, believe that we're smarter and more capable than we are. Um, essentially, there are areas in life where we all have low ability. And in any particular area, where you've, when you have a low ability, you don't usually possess the skills to recognise your own incompetence, um, one's own incompetence. So it's a combination of poor self-awareness and low cognitive ability that lead people to overestimate their capacities, capabilities. And even Charles Darwin alluded to this. He wrote, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. And the Dunning-Kruger effect actually goes both ways slightly. So it tends to be that people with a lot of knowledge, high expertise, will slightly underestimate their capacity. So it's, it's they cross over. People with low um, knowledge have high confidence and people with high knowledge have low confidence. And then at some point it changes. Um, anyway. One of many, many uh, ways our minds misperceive things. Um, and happy to talk more about that uh, after the meditation. In tonight's meditation, um, the invitation is to continue the orientation of observing the mind, investigating the mind getting to know it better. And through this intentional observing, um, we increase our knowledge on the mind's habits, patterns, energies, reactions. And that's all connected with developing wisdom, a small aspect of developing wisdom. And as we learn about the mind, and I say the mind, rather than my mind or your mind, the mind. Um, we and, and see its patterns, see its habits, we increase our capacity to move out of their grip. We see them for what they are. We observe the contents of the mind and tune in also to any underlying mental current. And particularly, we've been talking about the, the three um, root causes, unwholesome mental states, um, you know, is greed, hatred, delusion present? Or maybe there's an absence of them. Maybe the mind is quite content with whatever is being experienced. And that's to be known too. Checking the mind, um, observing the mind, is a meditation approach that is found in the Satipatthana Sutta or the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. It's the third foundation um, that the Buddha instructed us on and invited us to bring awareness, wisdom to the mind and its contents. And in that sutta, he instructed meditators and this is a quote from the sutta one knows a mind with lust to be a mind with lust 
One knows a mind without lust to be a mind without lust. One knows a mind with anger to be a mind with anger. One knows a mind without anger to be a mind without anger. One knows a mind with delusion to be a mind with delusion. One knows a mind without delusion to be a mind without delusion. So we're looking at the mind, we're in, invited to look at the mind through the lens of greed, hatred and delusion, lust, anger and delusion. Um, and Biko Analio, in talking about uh, that um, method of meditation, says the main thrust of that contemplation can be summarised as continuous inward monitoring with the question, how is the mind? Bhikkhu Bodhi writes in terms of this practice, for practical purposes, it's sufficient at the outset to focus on observing whether the mind is associated with any of the three unwholesome roots or is free from them. When a particular state of mind is present, it is noted merely as a state of mind, not identified as I or mine. So, so bringing into that process the, the wisdom of non-self, the understanding of non-self. Whether it's a pure state or a defiled state, Bhikkhu Bodhi writes, a lofty state or a low state, there should be no elation or dejection, only a clear identification of the state without clinging to the desired ones or resenting the undesired ones. So bringing equanimity to what it is that we're experiencing as best we can. To ensure, he writes, that the hindrances are kept under control, we're instructed not merely to note the hindrance, but to discern how they arise, how they can be removed, and how they can be prevented from arising in the future. So really um, encouraging us to learn from what it is that we observe as we um, observe the mind. So my intention in, in guiding the practice, and of course everyone's free to um, choose a med meditation process that suits you, but what I thought I would do is for the first 15 minutes or so, um, just invite uh, bringing attention to what it is that might be going on in the mind, naming a few aspects that, that we've talked about over the last three weeks. And then for the last 15 minutes or so, just to have that in silence and um, if you for you to choose the uh, practice that you would like to, um, maybe continue the practice that we were doing, or if you'd prefer to go to the breath and, and rest, um, with a focus on the breath, of course, uh, that or the whole body. Um, so leaving that for everybody to um, choose for yourself. Okay, if you feel like standing up before we move into the meditation, that can be nice just to let the body know uh, we do care for it. Um, we don't expect it to stay immobile for an hour and a half. I'm having a bit of a stretch. even a bit of a shake. 
that's good for you. Mm. Okay, so settling in. Settling in. So that's that's an invitation to to the mind and the body. To pause from all of the, the doing that it's had to engage in today. Often that's a doing that's externally focused. And it's an invitation to turn the mind inwards. And this body, this body sitting, this body resting. This body breathing. Be a useful anchor for the attention as we shift gears from intentionally trying to understand and work things out and analyze and that kind of thing. Just to, to coming into a more settled pause. And this body is, is the first of the four foundations of mindfulness. So it's a lovely way to connect with that practice, connecting with the body, knowing the posture of the body, Knowing the different sensations that are present in the body. Knowing the movement of the breath. Coming in. And leaving the body.
And if you feel like it, moving the attention to observe the mind. We can still have a sense of, of bodily presence, but our primary focus is hmm, what's going on in the mind? Often when you intentionally make that shift to observing the mind, it feels like it's the first time all day that there's been some stillness and silence in the mind. But sooner or later, there'll be some activity. So just sitting back, observing, might have a sense of sitting on the couch in the lounge room, observing the television. So there's our presence, our awareness, and there's some activity moving through the mind, moving across the screen. And sometimes there's silence. Knowing silence when when that is what's present in the mind also. We don't need to generate anything other than the awareness, other than the knowing of what is in the mind right now. We can rest back and relax as we observe the mind. And when you notice a thought arising or the, a thought present as 
sometimes we don't notice the thought until it's established. Just checking it out to see, is there any underlying mental current connected with greed, anger, delusion? Maybe it's just a distracted movement from one thing to the next to the next, more associated with delusion. Or maybe there is a, a sense of wanting. Or a sense of aversion. How are you relating to the contents of the mind? Is there any identification with the thoughts, reactions, feelings? Is it being experienced as my mind, my thought, my reaction? Or is it understood to be a thought, a reaction, a feeling that's arisen due to certain causes and conditions. And that when those causes and conditions change, so too will the contents of the mind. rather than a sense of I'm meditating, it's possible to see experiences as meditation happening and an awareness of meditation happening. Meditating without a meditator. 
more like a series of phenomena coming into awareness and going, arising and passing away. Allowing the, the changing nature of this experience, moment to moment, to be recognised. Not holding on to any of it, not resisting any of it. cultivating wisdom.
Thank you, Catherine. Would you like to continue uh, with your talk or ask for questions? It's mm. a good question, Chris. Um, maybe, I, maybe I'll just um, put up a little cartoon which can um, encapsulate the the topic of delusion and ignorance that I jumped over, which was that um, delusion, particularly being sold to us even more and more in a modern world, that we can find happiness outside of ourselves. Um, consumer capitalism certainly wants us to believe that um, by spending money, giving money to a business, we will gain happiness. Um, oh, no, not that way. And I think this little cartoon neatly encapsulates it all. Yeah, very neatly so, well, or untidily so, might I add, Catherine. Yeah. You know, the, the reality that the thing goes from being a desired object to being discarded, you know, the, the time lag differs, um, but it certainly doesn't take long for humans to stop seeing what was once a shiny new novel idea as now of no interest because there's a new shiny novel new object available for us to purchase um, and and each time it's accompanied by the lie the delusion that this will make us happy um, Yeah, and how easy it is to stay hooked into that. Um, be interesting to know what are the what are the perceptual bi biases there um, at work that keep us um, believing the, the lie that this will make us happen. And maybe while I'm speaking about perception, just to just to name another few aspects to perception. Um, our brain both um, at, through our attention will highlight certain information to be brought in and our brain is also, it has a, and this has only been discovered in the last 10 years or so, a neural process that acts as a gateway for keeping information out as well. Um, sensory information. Uh, right now we are being bombarded by so many bits of sensory information from the, the temperature, the pressure in our body, the, the lakes and pains, the sounds, the sights. Um, if we tried to make sense and process all of that information, we'd be um, 
it'd be just completely overwhelming. So very sensibly, our brain learns to attend to what it believes to be important, or our mind in this case also, um, what it believes to be important and to filter out the rest. And then what's brought in is processed according to our life experiences, our memories, our expectations, um, our personal preferences, um, what our desires or motives in that moment are. Um, so many different things will colour how we perceive to be the experience of the moment. Um, and knowing that and remembering that um, helps us remembering, remember that we, what we're seeing, what we, what we are perceiving, what we're perceiving is a, a version of reality very much our own, very much conditioned by many, many, many factors. Um, and, you know, it'll have some resemblance to an external reality, but only a partial resemblance to an external reality. Um, I don't know if you've ever been at a family event where everybody is talking about something that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and just the versions of it, the different versions that exist and who was the main player and who did the right thing, who did the wrong thing. You know, it's just astounding sometimes. Who was even there? Um, it can become so much of a family history that people who weren't even there have now taken it on as part of their personal history. Um, so perception is, is uh, very fallible. Yeah. Any questions? Any comments? Well, please, if you'd like to ask a question, uh, either type it in the chat. Uh or unmute yourself and ask. It would be delightful to have some questions to finish the evening this evening. Stupid question, stupid question of the five, where perception is the third one, with form being the first thing. We see here smells uh, or do something, then we experience it as pleasant or unpleasant. The third is perception. I can't remember. What are the fourth and the fifth? The sankara is the fourth, mm. and consciousness is the fifth. So sankara is that um, mental proliferation, that process of mental um, uh, what the mind does with what it perceives. Story making. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. All right. So Sankara, mental proliferation, and five is consciousness. And that's how we, that's the process of becoming and rebirth in every moment, right? Is that right? They're the things that we tend to cling to. And um, they, they map out more or less, they cover what our experience is in, in every moment. It's all happening. Thank you. And I love, I, mean, I love the interrelationship between um, the second and the third, the second being Vedana or the pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling or neutral feeling of an experience and perception. Um, 
and how they interact. And sometimes my sense is that our perception is um, conditioning the feeling tone. Because if we perceive, um, you know, there's, there's that very commonly used um, example of walking down a path, something's curly on the path, ah, it's a snake. So the perception of the snake is before the unpleasantness, is it? I don't know. I love thinking about this. Or is the feeling tone always preceding the perception? How do those two interrelate? Anyway, I think it's a worthwhile thing to explore in experience as well. Um, but that's completely an aside. <laughs> what we're talking about today. I love talking about this. Your, this stuff is so helpful. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure, Marta. I hate that I missed last week. Oops. Uh, life, hey. Put her in a cage. Uh, Gita, would you like to unmute? Thank you, Martha. Thank you, Gita. Um, thank you, Catherine, for an amazing presentation of ignorance, delusion, you know. That the mother of all, <laughs> all the problems, and giving such fresh kind of examples and outlook on it, because otherwise, I, you know, I have the same things going story otherwise all the time. So it it just opens it up, and uh, so thank you very much for that. Um, when you just said um, about the five, well. Uh, aggregates. aggregates were mentioned it, um, it's, it just happens to sit in my first drawer here which um, they, there's some, a lovely example of how or why we can't tease them out because mm. these five always come together and so because of that the deception is of self is so difficult to deconstruct because these guys just happen in that instant. So, uh, yeah, so, I, so until the meditation becomes really sharp and even then we can only almost only separate the form and the, the rupa component and all the mental things lumped together. So, you know, it's still difficult. So it's no wonder we keep believing what we think is me. Yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Gita. Everybody needs it in their top drawer. <laughs> Just... <laughs> yeah. Inda. Wow. Right, I've unmuted. So. Carrying on from Gita's thing, I thought, I used to think money is the root of all evil. So now you've got great greed, hatred, and delusion. They're all condensed into money. So, so it's a nice invention, this money thing. <laughs> Kinder, my, my understanding of that quote it's, is that it's for the love of money is the root of all evil. And it's that craving. Money itself, if we can, you know, keep it in the top drawer and it just sits there. I mean, that might not be the best use of it, but it's that it's what happens in us 
And then that's really bang smack on in line with, with the Buddhist teachings. It's the craving, it's the love of, it's that ah, grasping that we get into. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. Thank you. Um, I was going to make a comment um, about uh, the delusion in um, thinking back of before I actually started to meditate, I was very aware of being, I would imagine now looking back, quite a deluded sort of person. And I remember being very heavily involved in yoga and lots of other sorts of meditation and things and feeling very spacey. And when I first sat my first meditation retreat doing mindfulness, it was kind of like I could see much more clearly. And I felt like beforehand, when you were talking about the glasses and the different glasses for um, the two different factors, I was thinking the glasses for me when I feel deluded are quite um, clouded. I can't see the world clearly. And it's a, I find that even now when I feel really confused and deluded, uh, everything looks, I can't see, I can't see. But as soon as um, the mind becomes focused and clear and calm, kind of quiet, I can see more clearly. And that's when the insight can happen. But um, my mind tends to go. So I know this deluded state of mind very well. And it's such a difficult place to be because when you're in it, you can't see. It. Mm. Um, and I just thought you might like to comment on something about that as well. Oh, Sky, I'm, I think it's such an important um, element that you've brought in that I hadn't mentioned um, today around mindfulness. You know, mindfulness being the um, foundation, I mean, I did sort of touch on it when I was talking about the four foundations of mindfulness, but not um, in the sense that you're naming it, of it being such a key mm. um, starting place and, and not starting place, starting place and continuing place and building place and strengthening place um, for, for all of the different um, elements that we're trying to cultivate, you know, without mindfulness, forget about loving kindness without mindfulness forget about the other um, brahma viharas without mindfulness forget about the potential for equanimity it, it's such a key component to um, understanding developing cultivating investigating yeah absolutely thank you Uh, Catherine, just a question for you about delusion. Delusions are a very difficult state to see your way out of and mm -hmm. also to also see you, that you are in it. Um, although I do find that people around me can detect it. And <laughs> I can see changes in my voice and changes in the intensity with which uh, I'm approaching uh, problems or difficulties. Um, I wonder if you'd care to comment more on that. Mm. Um, I'm sort of going to, I don't know where I'll get to with this response, Chris, but um, the in, one of the elements that you're um, highlighting is that um, this practice is not simply an intrapersonal practice 
where we learn about our own greed, hatred and delusion, but all of the um, practices that we do can be both internal and external. So you named other people being able to observe it in you. And I think that aspect of being able to observe greed, hatred, and maybe um, delusions a little bit less clear cut perhaps at times, um, both internally and externally. And I do love the challenge in the in the sutta that I read out, um, you know, from the Satipatthana Sutta, one knows a mind with delusion. One knows one knows a mind with delusion to be a mind with delusion. One knows a mind without delusion to be a mind without delusion. That's that's a big challenge, but that's that's what we're invited to know. Um, and I'm I'm giving the Buddha the benefit of the doubt that it's possible, um, <laughs> even if it is very very tricky um, to know delusion and a little bit like I mentioned I mean it, it does touch onto the Dunning-Kruger effect which I talked about where um, the less we know the the higher our confidence um, and maybe in in walking the path and developing these capacities we are, de we are developing self-awareness we are developing um, understanding about how this mind body heart works um, we do get um, closer to to seeing when delusion is is present but I certainly um, am sure that most of the time delusion is present I'm not aware of it it's it feels like that this needs to be just an ongoing um, and mindfulness, as Sky mentioned, um, I think there's probably a very close correlation between lack of mindfulness and delusion. Um, and when mindfulness gets sharper and sharper, um, mistaken understandings and perceptions are less likely to um, strongly present um, but those two things are working in tandem it feels yeah uh, thank you for that Catherine I do appreciate it and uh, I do appreciate also all the work that you've put into uh, putting these three seminars together and uh, the meditations and interrelated them together i've got a very strange insect crawling across my floor at the moment <laughs> but anyway it's, it's been wonderful i've got a poem to finish with chris oh that would be lovely catherine yes and, um martha was saying how martha was saying how she missed last time and ah the stuff of life i think that was me but helen are you up for reading this okay here goes i'm going to put it up this again is from uh, Australia's living national treasure. Not sure how it translates across cultures, but here goes. A life. Anyone can get a life. Anyone can lose it. But who will dare to inhabit the thing and use it? A lived-in life will soon get loose and worn from use and feeling. Countless tiny scratches. The shine goes off. 
it's very unappealing. Dirt builds up a load of muck and grit. A part of you gets lost, a hope, a philosophy, or a love that doesn't fit. Another broken sleep, a dream collapses, a quick repair, it's worth a try. A scrap of string from the soul, perhaps a battered grin will fill the hole, or just a sigh. Flakes and cracks, a major idea buckles badly. A makeshift support is put up quickly. A tired old joke could hide the dint or be a wedge or a patch or a splint. Truly, sweetly, sadly. And yet it works and lives. It all still goes. It forgives. It's a miracle. Worn in, bashed in, cried in. And the great thing, a lived in life can be happily died in. <laughs> Thanks, Helen. Um, and, and for me, that's loonie, just embracing the stuff of life. Um, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, yeah. So I'd just like to say um, thank you all for the opportunity to come and uh, spend some time exploring those three unwholesome mental states together. Um, for me, I'm really grateful for having this opportunity to do that. It's helped deepen my engagement with those elements. And, um, you know, I know that as we come together and practice, that this practice does make a difference. Um, it does make a difference for each of us, but it also makes a difference for the people whose lives we touch. Um, so I appreciate the time and the effort and the, the dedication of everybody here. Um, and I look forward to continuing coming together over the rains period. Um, I'm spending a month at Jana Grove and self-retreat in September, so I'll be missing in action for a month. But um, in the meantime, apart from that, I'll be continuing to be here with everybody. So thank you very much, everybody, and go well. <laughs>